Howdy, everyone. Ryan here. We've got a great interview for you coming up with a fellow named David Duhalde. But before we do that, I just have to briefly note that this podcast is now sponsored by the American Prospect magazine, as usual. So if you support the show at the $10 a month mark and our Patreon, you'll get a free digital subscription to the magazine, plus a steeply discounted uh, print subscription if you want it. Aside from that, uh, ratings, reviews on uh, iTunes and elsewhere, always appreciated, or just regular old listen. So without wasting any more time, let's get started with our interview with David. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We are welcoming to the show uh, David Duhalde, who is the chair of the Democratic Socialists Fund. Of America Fund. Of America Fund, my mistake. Uh, is basically a sister nonprofit to the DSA mothership. <laughs> and uh, David is also uh, one of the authors of a new book, a chapter in a new book called Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. Um, and you've got a chapter, we're going to talk about it, in there about, uh, you know, the history of DSA and the uh, 2020 campaign and so on and so forth. So um, before we get to that, I think it would be useful for people, you know, who may not understand. I've been a DSA member since 2016, sort of a paper member for the most part, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I don't have a really good grasp on how the organization is structured, but so so can you uh, explain the you know the the the, the chapter process, the national uh, political committee, and like all that stuff? Give us a sketch of the the org chart, as it were. Sure. So anyway, thank you so much for having me uh, be here. As I was saying before, you know, long time listener, first time caller. Um, I have actually been active in the Democratic Socialists of America for about actually two decades, which makes me unusual, not necessarily for the length of time, but because I'm a millennial. So I'm in this Venn diagram of people who are like super into DSA, but also like are very active Twitter users and had an AOL screen name. <laughs> um, so, so I've, and so, but, but that fortunately makes me a good person to answer your question because I've actually, I think I say I've been involved in every level possible of DSA because I started as, a campus activist. I was on the national leadership before I became national staff, which is when I first met uh, Ryan in the District of Columbia when I was the deputy director from 2015 to 2017, and then have been in working groups and others so forth. So it's important to kind of remember that it's the Democratic Socials of America. So it's very much an American organization, whether it wants to be or not. So DSA is federated. So what I always noticed about DSA that was a little distinct from other nonprofits was like, there is a singular branding. So DSA has a board that's elected by the membership, which we can go into in a second. Uh, but there's no real in between that. Then it just goes straight to the chapters. Um, and somewhat, this was somewhat modeled off of organized labor, which had like internationals, locals, than chapters. So there was even a time colloquially that has ended, I think, for good reason, where the grown-up community lo were called locals and the YDSA groups were called chapters. But now everything is just called chapters. So you get involved. So the vast majority of people um, who are involved in DSA are involved at the local level. But I would estimate, you know, 10 to 15% of members do that. Most people are like, Ryan, you know, are my parents, you know, and are paper members. And I think that's pretty much been the standard ratio. It's been always interesting to see, like, though there are certain, like, math, there must be some math genius who will figure this out, like, but there's always pretty much the same percentage of people involved uh, at a given time. It's just that the numbers expand and contract. But you are a member of a national organization, so the branding is similar. So whereas opposed to I think of other nonprofit federated organizations that come to mind, such as the Center for Popular Democracy, which had been, which is what ACORN, for those who don't know, that's what had been ACORN. It's a progressive, multi-issue racial, multi-racial organization or People's Action, which is sim somewhat similar to the, the, their local groups. It's like all the names are different, you know, so it's like very much a local branding, whereas DSA, there's very much a central branding but with a local focus. So the majority of work you people see around the country, you know, 
is really driven by the local chapters um, with some coordination from the national. So which I think will be very relevant for what we'll be discussing later about what happens where there is. But because it's a national organization, there is interest and focus by the membership and outside on what is the organization saying? What is it coordinating? What is it doing? And how is it guiding its members? But the reality is it's DSA is a socialist organization, but doesn't come, but comes from a very much the socialist party tradition of like, which grants local autonomy. It doesn't have a very centralized vision, unlike I think lots of other, you know, socialist and communist groups that people come across. So really people do vote with their feet. Like the national can all really can't, can only direct where the members are, are going to go anyway. <laughs> so which we'll kind of go over in the history of the Bernie endorsement. So there's not, so there's very much an interesting give and take. So like, I would, I, one of the first episodes I remember listening to on your show was talking about the Ukraine statement that was coming out. And I think this is a good example too of like the different kind of checks and balances and somewhat sidling is to be put in more negatively in DSA too, where DSA also has these chapters and this national board, but Kind of, I'm making gestures. I realize that your listeners can't see, but like, but uh, but next to they're really the, good ones, though. If, ever, if for those <laughs> listening, they are the best gestures. <laughs> um, but there are also these working groups and national committees. So, and which are which are really imp- which I think I had a, I, which my friend Jaxery Linares wrote about in Convergence, which is actually the magazine that published the book we're going to be talking about, where they're reflecting on. Um, you know what had happened with Jamal Bowman, who was getting pressure from the uh, boycott and divestment and sanctions working group um and what he and and the and there was a big divide for listeners where like the boycott divestment and sanctions working group which I'll call BDS working group from now on wanted DSA not to endorse Jamal Bowman and to probably and do other actions because he had voted for the Iron Dome and Jamal Bowman's a, a DSA rep- member and representative from uh congressional representative from Westchester um and uh, in the Bronx, he's actually my grandmother. Now, David, what, was the working group a national working group or local? Or, okay, it was a national working group. So, so, yeah. so what Jack Linares mentions because Jack was like me; he was a member before the 2016. Was that the working groups then were kind of like chess clubs? It was like DSA was very weak. It's important to remember DSA had five. When I met Ryan, I think it, you know we were still about six thousand members. We were gaining momentum because of Bernie's run, but still, these were very much like. Even though we weren't uh, into structuralistness, they essentially were structuralist working groups. It was just like, right. are you interested in like international issues beyond the international committee? You know, and you would just like share articles. And these for scale, to, so the audience knows, DSA has something like ninety-one thousand members now. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. If even if it's shrunken, it's definitely over seventy. You know, I mean, and so that's what I'm saying. One of the things I always say to people like who are like worried, I'm like, even if we shrank to forty thousand, which we're not, that's still eight times as big as when I joined, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, and eight times as when I was staffed. So you have to put some perspective on that too. But so these groups kind of, these autonomous groups that it makes sense to be more autonomous when there's less political stakes kind of also grow. And I think that, so you have these national groups like the labor group, the international committee, which I served on last, a few, before, a few years ago, take on. And so where there's this tension, which I think Jack summed up really well, is you have these groups that in theory are beholden to the national leadership that's elected, but a national leadership that's mostly volunteers, five get a a small stipend for their time, a staff that's overwhelmed, don't have the time exactly. They're not there to be people's supervisors. So you can have these groups that operate independently and exert kind of their own force. And I think that's an issue that DSA really needs to reconcile, which I kind of say as like, you know, these are sometimes these working groups act as nonprofits <laughs> without federal registration, you know? And I think, so one thing I bring up is, because you guys mentioned, so I'm on, I'm the chair of the DSA fund. That's a separate legally nonprofit, but it works with DSA. We share, we have like, we have like two staff independently, but otherwise we like work with DSA very closely. But one thing we don't do, for example, is we don't put out statements. That's like something consciously we're like, we're here just to support, do educational programming to advance democratic socialism. And we just mirror what is, what DSA prioritizes, we prioritize. So we're doing like a talk on, and we try to complement. So right now we're doing, a series called How We Win on public policy victories that DSA chapters have led. So DSA does a great job electing people and we wanted to then educate 
the public, especially the members, I'm supposed to not say public as a super odd, but definitely DSA chapters and progressives, like, okay, you've elected socialists, these socialist electeds and chapters working coalitions, but, and then what do they win? And it's been a really fascinating series. Like yesterday, we were talking about Maine, New York, and Austin, and these worker rights victories that each of these chapters uh, were part of. And like, so that's the kind of fascinating stuff. But going back to what I was saying is we are, we don't put out statements, but these other working groups do. And what's a problem which I think we'll talk about too in the 2020 is like the, this is where the, the public does make sense to say the public in fairness. So I say is like, cannot distinguish between a statement from a working group and a statement from the national organization. You know, it's just not something the press is going to do. It's not something a reader right. is going to do. They just hear DSA and, and, and we're lucky if they know what that means. And, and that's what they associate with. the Perfect. statement. Exactly. And the same reason why, and this I also understand emotionally because I'm someone who's very political and intellectual politics, where we do run into the problem too of like, we have a very thorough endorsement system. And then someone says like, I'm a DSA member and I'm running. And the press, especially in New York, will be like, DSA candidate, da, da, da. And we're like, we're like, no, that's not actually our candidate. It's just a member who's running. Sometimes we're like, God bless them. You know, we're just not interested. Sometimes we're like, Really wish they didn't run, <laughs> you know, but, but it, but so it creates confusion. And so I think this is something. So the structure of DSA is very like national board working groups, top of national board, then the working groups, then the chapters. But there's still a lot of like checks and balances and give and take that each side has like some carrots and some sticks on the other, which I think is very interesting because and that's what makes DSA ultimately so actually very democratic <laughs> because democracy is not always easy. It's messy. It's not always pretty messy. Yeah, messy is the best way. But it is but it is a fascinating place to be in. And like and I do kind of say like I go sometimes it's like whatever day I'm feeling. But in the end I when I take a step back, I'm like, it is actually incredible that this small organization relatively can really shape an agenda, you know, in New York, or at least push an agenda in New York and nationally with such prominent figures. That, so really DSA does punch above its weight. You know, I think especially if you compare to like other nonprofits who have, you know, multi-million dollar budgets more than DSA, much dozens more staffers, you yeah. know, and I, and I don't think that, and they're not like getting the same amount of attention, which I think is a blessing and a curse as we'll discuss. <laughs> Sometimes attention no, is no, always good. I, and I, <laughs> You know, and I think we should get into the specifics of, of 2020 in, in, in a minute and mm. why the the trickiness of, of the history of endorsements or non-endorsements uh, might inform how DSA can, can strategize better going forward. But just to, to kind of recap for everybody, the, the messiness has these trade-offs, right? And I think we should maybe mention what has been so good about uh, this kind of uh, adaptive management structure and, and, and the organizational flexibility and kind of uh, federated nature of it. Um, and then we could get back to, because I think we could get into Ukraine and Jam Jamal Bowman a little bit and, and what you advise going forward. Uh, you know, let, let the audience know, first of all, what the kind of problem was there with those two examples. Um, but, uh, but first, maybe let's talk about the success. Uh, for those who don't know, right, and and why why it's even worth getting into the the problems because it's only really worth talking about the problems of an organization if the organization is strong enough to do good mm -hmm. things also. And so maybe we should recap a little bit for everyone uh, who might not know why DSA in its its big growth period uh, has been good for the left, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, that's a great, and I think I'll borrow a little bit from the series I've talked about um, in other. And other political victories. But so it's important. Let's put in context too. Like DSA was about five or six thousand members before 2016, before uh, Bernie Sanders loses the primary. But people think that Bernie Sanders campaign really drew people into DSA and it wasn't. I mean, I think it would, it's what got people aware of DSA. So there's like the different stages, like there's the awareness stage and then there's what people are mobilized. And I think when Trump it wins and then and then he is inaugurated. You begin to see that's when thousands, thousands of people start joining. And what DSA was really good at was a couple of things. So DSA, I think for reasons that involve pluck and luck, you know, some of it was just pre prepared. Like we had like younger staff who were like more tech savvy, including myself. We had like a porous democratic structure that if you remember, you could just immediately come into. So you didn't have to go through like this long onboarding stage. We had like 
because we were practiced, because we're still like uh, a civic society organization who's not, who's invested in socialism, but socialism and revolutionary change is not all we do. It was like, there was a variety of things people could do under the DSA banner. I remember people joining at first and they were like cleaning parks. I was like, good. It's not what I want to do personally, but like, but then it was became there, but people were looking for something to do and electoral politics became a way to do it. And, and there'll be other things we can talk about successes too, I'll bring up. But I think the fact that DSA could would be a venue in which you as a newly activated person, often a young person, but not exclusively, I think that's really important to know, were like, I want to do something. You, you fa- had this group where you can immediately plug in to do things. And I think, so the concrete example I give always is like, um, and it also reflects technological changes. I think I talk a little bit about the chapter, but I've talked about in other writings where when I first joined DSA, um, give Bernie Sanders as an example. We did a Bernie Sanders size run for Senate. We endorse him. Um, he's, he's, he's very thrilled about that. He was like much closer to the organization then because he wasn't as like prominent. Um, and he had more time. So we did all these fundraisers for him, which were a ton of work because you, the internet was still so new. So people are sending in paper registrations. Like it's just, it's incredibly difficult, uh, to do anything for him. Flash forward to 2017, I'm the Nash, I'm the deputy director and I have to run this. And um, we have this candidate, Khalid Kamau, who's now the mayor of South Fulton, but then was running for city councilor as like a Black Lives Matter DSA candidate. What could I do differently? I could say, you know, Khalid, I don't have to give you any money. What I can do is I can get national phone banking for you. And it was, so DSA had this strength where you had people who were very energized, wanted to do something. And had this national umbrella. So as I was mentioning, you know, it's federated. So it's the carrot and stick. But if you're like, here's something we can do. And we just had chapters across the country because he had a February 2017 primary. So it was like not a lot was going on. And it was like really just this perfect time after the inauguration where people were willing to do stuff. So DSA was able to take advantage and find these candidates and these candidates find us who are members and win. And it slowly starts crescendoing to like the famous victory of Ocasio-Cortez, you know, in, in 2018. But I think that also misses like that DSA in New York and Chicago start winning these small state legislative victories and start building squads of their own around really pushing out, uh, you know, stale Democrats, like very conservative Democrats. And these lead to like, this really important thing where you have like elected officials in place, you have these very activist chapters and this willingness to build coalitions. So like the examples we were giving on the call yesterday about, I'll give, I'll try to give some that are not so New York forwards, but the main one where Maine is running a ballot measure. It's Maine DSA covers the whole state, but it's a lot of it's centered in Portland, the major city. Um, and they have elected officials. They have, the chapter and they run this ballot measure. And what they talk about is like, you know, they build this coalition around like increasing the minimum wage and also in creating better environmental protections in a very positive, like talking about love and talking about this because there was so much negative campaigning going on around Susan Collins at the time that it was just refreshing <laughs> for Maine voters to hear like a positive message at the time. And so this was like a fascinating example of where you have like this group that's in place with different elements and connect. Um, there. And I think that really speaks to, you know, the strength of DSA that it's connect that when it works best, it like is able to leverage its elected officials, its positions in civic organizations and its own membership base to really push change. And so recently, you know, DSA in New York state was like really part of this coalition to get this renewable energy bill passed and it failed. And there was all this criticism Coming from folks saying like, oh, well, it looks like you can't do it. Oh, I guess. Do you like being the junior partner, which is kind of a reference to like this different. There's like the, the, this political strategy put forward, like kind of by Justice Democrats and people like me who like reckon who say like given the powers of the Democratic Party, the center social Democratic left will be the junior partner for now. And hopefully we'll become the senior partner. And then this guy who's actually politics I don't really agree with, who's kind of I would kind of say is like more hardline, like create a new party. But he was from California, said. I'd really love to have these problems New York have. Like, cause we, they don't have like, they're like, cause DSA is not part, do, it doesn't, it doesn't have the strength there yet to like push that kind of agenda. And it was kind of like those important, like, let's take a step back and realize like this wouldn't even be going to being a chance if DSA hadn't been part of this broader coalition to build 
um, these, this, the, this, this energy and this momentum to really get this bill even potentially to the floor. So sometimes there's like, they have to take a step back and, and think, okay, wow, that we are really more forward than we were. And it's because you have these, or, an organization that's uniquely positioned when it works well to like leverage different parts of, um, of society and its membership to advance an agenda. Yeah, there's a real, I think this is a underappreciated point, you know, that these big city machines just have no organic support to them, you know, like they rely, like, especially New York City and, their, and New York State on just like rigging the rules of the primary elections and other like cheap tricks, you know, like nominating old people or dead people to be on the local party committees and stuff like that. You know, like they don't have a sort of Tammany Hall organization of like thousands and thousands of like rank and file people ready to come out. Uh, for them. And so if you're even a little bit organized, uh, you can basically do entryism, you know, and still have a more substantive like base, like in terms of like serious numbers, uh, than, than these, you know, incumbent fossils. Um, but yeah, this may be, you know, it's a, it's a good way to get into the, the, uh, endorsement question you talk about in the 2020 campaign, which I feel like is what really seems to motivate you. Uh, not, not about like campaigning for Biden, but being in the game. But something interesting to learn was that DSA endorsed John Kerry in 2004. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah. yeah. So run us through that, that, that history there briefly, uh, before you talk about 2020. Yeah. So I think what, so what power concedes nothing. I'll also talk, talk, explain this book a little bit. So it's a good, it's a great anthology that I would encourage, uh, people to look at that covers, what different organizations from unions such as Unite Here um, to community groups, like I mentioned earlier, People's Action, and everyone in between did in 2020. Um, and I was asked to write um, about DSA as for very much almost as what DSA didn't do as it did. So it was kind of like this interesting, uh, you know, kind of almost complement to like the, the other pieces where like I looked and so I felt that I it would be unfair to the reader um to just talk about 2020 because I am not a historian but I really love history and I think that as someone who joined DSA before I would see like one thing I never liked was like when people would say this is DSA's first and I knew it wasn't the first because I don't think because I think as much as also I don't want people's work to be erased, I also don't want people's mistakes to be erased. So I don't want people to also uh, repeat the mistakes that I think DSA had made. And so what I did was in the book, I look, I went and one of my central theses in the chapter is that like both sides, those who were totally saying DSA should take no action to potentially defeat Trump to those saying DSA should do Work were kind of ignored. Both had this false narrative that this was like an unprecedented thing that DSA had not endorsed Joe Biden. So I looked back at history starting from the Democratic Social Organizing Committee, which uh, I believe your editor, Ed Moretis, uh, but I think Harold Meyerson had been, been the staffer for, um, which was one of yep. the predecessor organizations to DSA. Um, Democratic Social Organizing Committee, which I'll call DSOC from now on, merged with this group called the New American Movement in 1982. But the DSOC example is really important because where DSA arguably was when it was the, when this democratic social formation was almost the most influential ever, uh, was in 1980 because it played a real role in drafting Senator Ted Kennedy to run against Jimmy Carter in the 1980 primary. Um, and really had built a coalition, which I talk about, you know, is kind of the last leg of like defending the New Deal coalition before it dies, you know, and before, before Reagan really kills it. But what was very funny to me is because everyone have, has these like rose colored glasses. So people in from Harold's generation who weren't members anymore were aghast that DSA wasn't doing this. And I just went to like this biography of, Har of Michael Harrington, who had been the leader of DSA until his death of, you know, both real and de facto, where they didn't, where they didn't, DSOC not only didn't endorse Carter against Reagan, you know, Harrington kind of said like, or publicly like didn't really give a committal statement about the Anderson and commoners like, uh, non-major party runs. So it was like, there was like this complete analogy 40 years earlier where the same people were literally 
make where DSA, I feel, was making the same mistake. But what I didn't like was the people who had been part of that mistake were like kind of pretending it didn't happen, you know, and and I think that so then I talk about in the chapter, I think there's these series of corrections and overcorrections where effectively, I think, which I hadn't thought about till I spoke about this chapter, DSA only picked the winner once. <laughs> um, and that was, and then the funny thing was the, the winner was Barack Obama, where DSA hadn't endorsed anyone. So DSA often stayed out of primaries. It endorsed because it overcorrected in, in 1984. It ignored Jesse Jackson, which was like a real mistake. I think it's still one of DSA's biggest mistakes in terms of having long-term effects of keep, be DSA being very white, being kind of, uh, wasn't, it was like a key time where like DSA should have jumped in. Um, and so endorses Mondale. Mondale gets crushed. <laughs> um, DSA does get it right in 88 and endorses Jackson. But then DSA's endorsements kind of go into a slumber. And then, so I talk about the book that as Ryan mentions that the DSA also doesn't endorse anyone for president until John Kerry, which I think, which I say is interesting if you look back because there were two very progressive people running at the time. There was, who uh, seemed progressive, at least to me, uh, Howard Dean and Dennis Kucinich, but and DSA membership were split. So it also showed DSA wasn't at the time strong enough or willing enough to facilitate a discussion to intervene in a primary at that strength. So DSA actually doesn't intervene in a primary since I think since Jesse Jackson, you know, till Bernie Sanders runs, you know, and I think that is very telling in that. You, it's a, it's a time where DSA members finally feel like this is our chance. Like this is like a way we can actually be part of something bigger than ourselves. We will advance our politics. Um, but what I still put in context is like even in that 2016 race, and I'm going to stop here because I want to see what questions you guys have too. And what your thoughts are like DSA did not endorse Hillary Clinton. And I, I remember. Lots of people were upset about that, but DSA at that time really pushed for consensus pieces. You know, it was like a victory for Hillary will be better. Uh, it doesn't go that far, but it's like, you know, Trump is the main enemy, but it won't go. And it was still, but it was still much more explicit in 2016 that Trump was the real threat. You know, it didn't, there was less like Hillary is bad. It's more like Trump is a real threat, but. <clears throat> We're not going to make an endorsement. The same thing we did in 2012, you know, with where Obama had backtracked on so many, uh, promises, right. you know, that right. it, that it didn't make sense to endorse him over Romney. And I think that what I will say, because it's really central to me and I think speaks to like some of the stuff, uh, I'd say stuff is the wrong word because it's, there is a real word for it. It's like the, the disc, more than discourse, but it's the emotions and the, and the passions. Around these, around the Ukraine statements that DSA put out and these is that people get very emotionally invested, I think, in places that DSA's impact is very limited. And also, but where, and I think we're, and that's because I think when the impacts are much more real, people can actually become much more rational actors. Okay. We should do the, uh, in New York City. Yeah. New York. But it's like, so. When it, when it's symbolic, it's almost, that's where the real landmines are. But if, if there's an actual change about to occur, people will swallow their pride a little bit and, and have more coalitional, uh, kind yeah. of solidarity. Or just, or just know, like, they, even if they don't want to be part of it, like, I don't want to be part of this. I'm just going to leave this conversation. Like, I've lost, you know, whereas. Sure. Yeah. So I think where I was going with this is like DSA in. 2020, you know, this, this debate, I think, and I was talking about it with my comrade, Sam Adler Bell, who read the chapter, who, and he was like, what blew his mind, which, cause he's, he knew it intellectually, but not intuitively. He's like, yeah, Biden never wanted the endorsement. Like, so these people are yeah, like sure, sure, fighting yeah. like cats and dogs over something that wasn't even requested or desired. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, and that there was like, and that was, yeah, I, I'll just be one second where I said, which I felt like was lacking on both sides. It was like, the people who were withholding it were like, we're withholding something. I was like, you're withholding nothing. He doesn't want it. And the people who are like giving it to him, I'm like, I'm like, don't you, don't you think like, <laughs> why do you want to give him something that he doesn't want? <laughs> this is classic leftist uh, problems though, because like so much of the left is, I think properly to, I mean, the reason that DSA is popular in part is because people hate neoliberal centrist establishment Democrats for good reason, right? Like we're anti-capitalist and 
if it means anything to differentiate ourselves from just standard, you know, run of the mill establishment Democrats, it has to be on principle. And so even when it doesn't seem to have a, a kind of pragmatic consequentialist effect, it feels like it really matters in the abstract to, to, to figure out what our principles should result in symbolically even. Right. Um, but what's interesting in, in your, uh, chapter in your argument is we, we have to kind of disaggregate a few things here about the endorsement stuff, right? Because because you're not even saying that DSA should have endorsed Biden. And as you say, he didn't even want it. Um, but whether or not there was much work done at all to defeat Trump, right? In terms of the electoral uh, energy that DSA put forward. I don't know if it's in terms of financial resources, in terms of like, uh, you know, what the different kind of uh, tools were in the fight. But, um, but that reminds me that there's kind of a meta argument or meta division or conflict or contestation over like how much electoral politics, uh, is what DSA does or should do or when DSA should be really involved in electoral politics. And to me, the, the Bernie example is a really good example because it was so clear that this guy is different from the rest of those Dems, right? Like this guy is, is actually somebody we could call a socialist, right? In some way. Some people say he's a social Dem, whatever, but he is not Biden. He, that's clear. And, um, and when you look at what Biden has actually done in office, for me, looking back, it's like I would feel a little bit bad if DSA endorsed Biden, because what are people going to learn about who DSA is in contrast to these feckless Democrats if we're willing to endorse this idiot, right? This this kind of, you know, establishment guy who won't fight for anyone, right? Uh, and yet the left has this problem where it sometimes looks like we don't care about the reactionary right and those forces. So, uh, so maybe walk through like how you're trying to separate a few of these finer points here because we, it can get, it can get lost in this binary of endorse, don't endorse, but it's actually a little more complicated, right? Yeah. And I think this speaks to a funny moment I had this morning, which was almost like a too perfect harbinger where I'm just checking my Twitter and somebody, I go check my like messages that are like, you know, the, solicited messages because they're not people who follow you or and this guy like says like aren't you happy you campaign for this guy i was like what's he talking about and so i click on it and it's like biden uh nominating that anti-choice judge and i think it was so funny to me i didn't respond but i thought it was very funny because um he is reflecting like the misunderstanding that I think you were talking, you were hitting well, where I never, where the people were, I talk in the chapter, like I was part of an effort that included a letter of DSA members who said we should be more explicit in defeating Trump. And we intentionally never listed Biden's name. And what we also were concretely saying was like, what we should do is we should focus. And this is something like Rashida Talib did in, in Michigan and her campaign is like focus on swing states where we have members or they're progressives and we like fight hard to get the GOTV turnout because that will like increase the people who will vote against Trump, you know? And so it was like this, we felt like this was like the, the way you thread the needle. It's like, no one, we don't, I don't think we should endorse Biden. I never thought DSA should endorse Biden. And I always thought it was, and I always actually thought it was very shallow besides personally being annoying that it's like not what I was saying. I actually thought it was an interesting dodge that people were saying that instead of addressing what we were saying. Which was because it would have been much harder to defeat us and being like, why don't we just get GOTV for Rashida Tlaib? Why don't we really go hard for all the, the Philly candidates and the general, you know, who yeah. are going to win yeah, anyway? But like, say no to that. Right? Yeah, because yeah. you can't say no to that. So you, so, and I think this speaks to like the problems we're having, not to jump too far ahead with January 6th, which is like that if yep. you really said there was no huge difference and that it really wasn't that important to like defeat Trump. If you're, if you got to keep that thread going, you really have to just dismiss the January 6th hearings and. Which a lot of leftists did. They, which they a lot did of leftists that. did and are doing. And like, it's, and I think yeah. it's very, it's like, I think it's unfortunate that like, I really do rely on the daily in the New York Times to find out what's happening about January 6th. Like, I don't, but I mean, you guys, the American Press reports on it, you know, but there's like lots of other left wing outlets and my Facebook, the social media where it just gets, you know, if I was it. being, yeah. if I was being like a, a good American and like not, <laughs> not reading the mainstream media and just listening to my Facebook, you, I honestly wouldn't even know right. what was happening in January 6th because so because few people some, are some leftists, they're, they're allergic to anything that makes them seem liberal. I get it. Yeah. I understand that, but, but that's not a good enough reason. 
Yeah, and I don't think this is a liberal about being liberal. I think it's like a fundamental attack on democratic rights. And I think where, and I hope I'm answering your question, but I think what's interesting is like, this is the break where like I talk about in the chapter where like DSA is, plays a real role in the people power for Bernie table, or which is, which is a DC way of saying coalition. I should shake those terms, uh, of different nonprofits like our revolution, the, some of the groups I've mentioned before, justice Democrats and some organizations of color like me, uh, dream defenders, uh, which is, um, African American group. Um, and then those groups all stay on for this defeat Trump table and DSA doesn't join. And it's like, and I bring up like our revolution, who I used to work for, and I, um, you know, disagreed with a lot of things they've done and have done before, but I thought they did it best. They like didn't endorse Biden and they didn't advertise it. They just focused on the work. And I think that was the thing to do. And I think, and that's where the DSA electeds were. It was like Bernie, AOC, of Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman, Rashida Tlaib, they were there and it was just odd for us not to be there in the same way. I think it's odd that, you know, Cory Bush has this legislation about like punishing the Jan 6 people and forget DSA. Let's talk about broadly speaking, the, the anti-capitalist left doesn't seem interested in that bill because I don't want to pick on DSA because it's not like DSA is like this outlier Unique. there. Yeah. You know, that's so, right. and, yeah. I, and I think that's a, it's a problem because it's like, I think Astra Taylor, who has this great saying, like democracies, bourgeois democracy sucks essentially, but you're going to miss it when it's gone because That's it's, right. and, and this is personally for me very like reflective. Cause I mean, it's like, I, my dad's from Chile and like he was there for the coup and it's like, he definitely taught me very young, like two things. It's like, one, he's like, I didn't take it that seriously. I at one point even said like, maybe it'd be better if the Christian Democrats worse to have the Christian Democrats in power than the military. He was like, I was wrong <laughs> for personal reasons uh too. And and that, like, the, losing the right to vote is terrible. I mean, like, it's just like a terrible, like, you, you, my dad couldn't vote for most of my life, you know? I mean, for most of my childhood. Like, it's just like, because they, because even when he became a citizen again after exile, like, they, the Chilean government said, like, people who live abroad can't vote because it was a way to punish all the leftist refugees, you know? Um, they only changed that recently because it's like more business people now go abroad. So, but, uh, but these are real democratic dilemmas that I think socialists and social democrats have a real investment in as part of our broader political vision and can't just leave to the liberals. Because if you leave defending bourgeois democratic rights to liberals, you're going to get a really worse Conclusion, and I think I will credit AOC's leadership right now. I don't know if it's, all, if it's only this, but like she's especially around the row. It's like you know, if you just left it to the establishment to defend Roe, it doesn't going to happen. But now she and others are pushing so hard, and this is where, and you do see groups like DSA involved in like actions, and now you do see Biden saying like, well, maybe we can do the filibuster reform, <laughs> you right, know, for this. Right. Like you know, it's like because he he because the 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 base now is getting so restive, and I think that's a good sign. For, and that's kind of what we want it. We want to see, I think. Yeah, it, it, the whole thing kind of reminds me of you know my thought process in 2016 and in 2020. Um, you know, there was a moment there in 2016 where it seemed like Bernie maybe was going to pull it out, and then he didn't. There was a, a moment in 2020. People forget this, where Bernie was ahead. Oh yeah, and Bernie, all of there the was like three, election, those three weeks. Yeah. All the election handicapper guys, Nate Silver and whatnot, said that he was he had by far the greatest chance to win. Yep. Um, and he he almost pulled it out. Uh, it didn't work. Bummer. But you know, so so my thought process is: all right, we're in the election. You know, what can I do that's sort of like consonant with the mission of like journalism, writing, and stuff that is also sort of politically useful. And it's just attack Trump. It's just attack Trump over and over again for the entire year. You know, I didn't, I wrote like the case for Bernie Sanders. Uh, and then after that, after the, that was wrapped up, it was the case against Donald Trump. Yeah. You know? And, and I think like I used to hear that, you know, there's this glib, you know, statement that like the, 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 if, if voting mattered, then they wouldn't, they'd be trying to take it away from you. Well, they're doing yeah, that right now. <laughs> the Supreme Court. Yeah. Recently, today, announced they're going to take a case for the next term next year about the independent state legislature doctrine. That's like basically saying that these gerrymandered Republican majorities in places like Wisconsin, where it's literally impossible for Democrats to win. I mean, absence like a, you know, 40 point uh, margin of victory. 
Um, they can just do whatever they want to election laws that even contravene the own state laws. Uh, and it, or you could even just vote to give the electoral votes to the Republican candidate without even having an election at all. Um, and that, you know, it like you look at places like Hungary, which is a fake, you know, authoritarian democracy like that is not a great place to be on the left. You know, the people face, uh, you know, coercion, lack of. Um, you know, job opportunities, if not violence from sort of, you know, street gangs and stuff like that. I mean, it's just a terrible oppression. Like in Chile, it was even worse, I think. But, uh, as you were mentioning, I mean, people were tortured and died. You know, people were, were thrown out of helicopters and the right wing now, they explicitly talk about doing that. They have fucking t-shirts with like, you know, leftist plus helicopter type shit, you know, uh, and I, I take them at their word. Uh, I think that they're, they really would like to indulge their, their, their violent fantasies. Um, and that's, you know, it's, 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 it really sucks to be in a situation where it's like Biden has to stand up to this lawless court. But if he doesn't, you know, or you can't get, you know, somehow another, uh, uh, action against, uh, this effort to overturn democracy, it's not going to work out well for the left, for labor unions or for anyone, you know, sort of affiliated with them. Um, and this maybe, I don't know, uh, it gets to another thing you, you wanted to talk about, uh, David, which is like a sort of cultural point. Uh, I, I think it, you mentioned, I think it's correct to say that from about 2014 through about 2018 or 2019, uh, the left was, was pretty, it was sort of like culturally relevant in the mix of the popular conversation in a way. And since that time, it seems to have kind of lost the thread. Uh, and like a lot of people like aren't even participating in the popular discussion. Um, or they're, you know, they're, they've just completely given up on any, uh, chance of things getting better. Uh, just writing things, a sort of so, sort of sense of scoffing. You see it on on January sixth. You see it uh, with anything the Biden administration tries to do. Um, what explains that, in your view? Yeah, I think that's a really good summary of how I'm feeling because I feel that like the left got that Hillary Clinton was not as popular as people wanted to believe she was and that she wasn't though she did win the popular vote i think we should not forget that but like that there was like it was a much harder vessel and that it was not bernie sanders like who brought it down and i think about there's this very convenient narrative among liberals which is like they just find like some progressive pariah whether it's ralph nader or bernie sanders and ignore which i think is very also the harder truth for them which is like the right wing is incredibly well organized and it's like doing this for decades it's not like these aren't accidents that happen. So the left got that. And I think that part of that was being on the margins. And part of that is like being around, you know, and being able not being close to these centers of discussion. Whereas when the left starts to become ascending, and I think you summed it up well, which is like how close Bernie came, but that's also an incredibly traumatic event, you know, that he, that he lost. Cause it was like, and that I remember people saying Bernie was cheated. And I said that he wasn't cheated per se, but it was a really, it was really unprecedented how Barack Obama picked up the phone and really got yes. people to drop out. I mean, that's like incredible. Like, I mean, that, like, it was just, it was like, that's just the way the, it's all I've fair and love and war. I've never seen establishment Democrats do anything in a more coherent, organized, efficient way ever. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was bonkers. And so then it's gone. And you do have the situation where we do have mass movements that we are part of. So we're not, we haven't really lost the problem, especially with George Floyd uprising, which is also really broadly tied to also uprising about the, the lack of response to COVID, which does deliver, I think, real goods. And I think what I will get to the negativity, but I do want to say the one positive thing is like, especially coming from the labor notes conference, where I do think there's been some positive direction in like, organized labor. It's not enough, but I do think some people are changing their energy around Starbucks or doing stuff with their own union. But that said, like, I'm one of those people. And when I went to my stewards training, I came a little late. What were people talking about? January 6th. So <laughs> here are the union members, the advanced sector of the working class. What were they talking about? They were talking about January 6th. And I was like, this is the first time I'm in my, I'm a, in my member organization, DSA or union or whatever, I've had this conversation. You know, and I was like, so you can't say it's like 
working class people aren't talking about it. <laughs> Literally, it's like I'm happy happening at my union hall. Um, and I think that's because going back to what I was saying before is like, it's, it, it's hard to be like, yes, Biden was really the clearly better choice because Biden is so horrible as a leader. He's like, just so inept and doesn't have any of the charisma, even when he does good things. Like we talked about yesterday with like around labor when he's like, NRB is fine. You know, it's, yeah. it's good. It's about as good as it's going to get for an establishment Democrat. And, you know, but he doesn't know how to sell it. So it's like, um, it's like in Sopranos when Uncle Junior goes, he doesn't know how to sell it. So it's like you have this, like, he's doing these really yeah. good, also an alumni of Bronx High School Science, uh, the, the Dominique Chinese. Um, uh, he, does good things, but he doesn't sell it. So then people get really more and more depressed and more and more can't see the good. So you don't have this good salesman. And so people can see just all this negative energy. And I think the left, because the left doesn't want to take, because I think there's also this cultural trend on the left where, which we, which is good in some ways. So you want to keep pushing, but is not good when you want to be like, wow, we've done something or we've shaped the agenda. So it's like the a better LRB is because workers are in motion. The left has like gotten people positive. You know, there's been like Biden didn't ever want to repeal student, forgive any student debt. And now he has, now he's at least talking about doing something. It's, it's far from enough, but that's actually, he has shifted on that, you know? And I don't think there's like, people don't want to give ourselves enough credit for that because it's not Bernie. It's not us doing it. It's somebody else, but that's politics. Politics is moving. People and politics. What's the harder part though? Sometimes politics is moving people and seeing how weak you are. And that, that hurts, you know. And I think there was a chance where we, people really thought we were going to be in power and it didn't happen. And I think that hurts. And I think about going just the last, not the last, but like a, a more recent analogy to Chile is like, no, Chile is effectively, you want to see what the DSA would look like in power? Let's look at Chile with Bordic, who was like younger, about a year younger than me. You know, it's the same, but. That happened because Chile has a multi-party democracy where his goal, where they could get 22, you know, whatever, 23% of the vote in the first round. And then they, then they're up against the, the, the quasi fascist. And then so, but you can't get, you can't do that in the United States because we have, we have two parties. So it, it makes it much harder sometimes to gauge. And I, and I really do think the left needs to, you know, take January 6th more seriously, if anything, just to push Eric Garland, who's really the attorney general really is the audience for these. And to be like, there is like people who are up in arms. You have to do something because, you know, you've had Jamal Bowie and, and, uh, and other people on this show, I think are people like we had reconstruction. We didn't punish it. We barely punished anyone. (laughs) You know, we have, the problem is we have a precedent in this country of like, Oops, let's let not, let's not like waspy. No offense to wasp, but like, oops, let's just never talk about that again. Um, that was that was like, and it's really scary, you know. I mean, that it's like, yeah. And I think that's where we need we need people there. And I and I, and so I do think it's a bit of trauma from COVID. I think it's trauma from Bernie losing that I think, and that people don't want to admit that we we are changing the discourse because it admits that we're not changing it as much as we want to be. So it's better just to be like nothing good is happening, you know, than to be like, okay, right. we got X right. or Y, you know, and then the last thing, yeah. no, nothing, no, and, no, and all this nuance doesn't play well on social media. I've, I think we've, we're all on social media. I think like I do a nuanced tweet, it gets three likes, usually one from my mom. Love you, mom. <laughs> you know, And I do some, and I, you do some toxic mean tweet and it's like, it does so much better. So it also really influences, I think like how we respond to all these things emotionally as well. Yeah. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, it's it's easy to say, you know, Twitter isn't real life or Facebook isn't real life, but like it it kind of is in some important ways. You know, it's like that's the most important communications channel. I think Twitter is in American politics anyway, because it's so influential on the media. I mean, Trump just led the entire, uh, you know, television broadcast industry around by the nose, just just tweeting like 50 times a day. Um, and it does have the exact uh, uh, negative um, you know, incentive structure that you described there. Uh, you know, it's a, <laughs> try to be nice. I, I struggle with this myself, but, you know, at least extend comrades a little bit of generosity of interpretation. Um, one, one aspect of this, it seems like, like there's a sort of a, a self-belief issue there too, you know, that like, um, 
I mean, it's something you see, I think, in Biden as well, you know, that like people do not actually behave as though they deserve to run the country, you know, that, and on the left, that's combined with a, a, a criticism of the United States, you know, that like pointing out all of the bad things that that, uh, you know, have, have happened in the past and continue to happen, you know, mostly uh, entirely legitimate. But like it makes it hard for people to like put themselves into the headspace of not only like. I'm going to go out and pull the lever or for whoever, but like, actually, you know, I, and the, you know, the people who are with me, we uh, deserve to run the show, you know? And like, it, the, it seems like neither the left believes that and, and the, and the liberals don't believe it either. You know, they would be standing up to Trump. They would be putting him in jail. Like, like Grant did to, you talked about reconstruction, Grant and Amos T. Ackerman there for a couple of years, they broke the KKK with, with federal prosecutions. Um, you know, it, it wasn't that difficult. It was just took a little military aggressiveness, but you don't, you know, you see this just pathetic, uh, uh, dithering from, from Garland. And I think it reflects just like a crisis of, of hegemony among the, you know, the, the liberals who don't actually believe their own sort of bumper stickers. And it's hard, you know, if you think the left can kind of, I don't know, is there any way do you think for the left to sort of like stand up, uh, and, um, come to a new understanding of their own position? I mean, I'm very curious what you both think about that too, before we end, um, because I think we're all just doing the best we can just in this really <laughs> confusing time. But I do think that one thing I'm happy about, just to plug kind of what the DSA Fund has been doing, which I think does answer this question, is like we are doing this How We Win series to – it's partly to have people like debrief publicly, here's how I won this campaign, you know, and then to have bringing – we're also thinking working to bring more more and more policymakers together. And I think that there has to be, in terms of organization, more conversations that are structured in person or on Zoom, not not with Slack, not with Twitter, about like what are different strategies to really build a coalition that can govern in a city, a state, the country to defeat the right and also advance. And I think that kind of has to force people to make honest assessments because I think I tweeted out in November 2021, I tweeted out a very unpopular tweet with a lot of DSA members where I said, like, maybe we've hit the plateau of candidates we can win on our own. And I think that I've been vindicated by that. I don't, I think we can elect progressives. I think we can elect even DSA members. They just have to involve broader coalitions. And I think that it comes down to also who is the audience. And I am still like a popular front <laughs> politics deep down that I've had since I was 16, where I think like the broader progressive working class or moderate work people who are moderate who can be one to an economic agenda, liberals of conscious, like broadly, we want to win those people over in a broader front, you know, to advance society. And I think it can't just be this kind of vulgar vanguardism because it's not even vanguardism because at least vanguardism is like, we're building this cadre organization. We're going to do it ourselves. It's like this broader, like insularism of like that, I'm not the first one to identify. And I think it's why I, I see DSA does best when DSA is part of coalitions, when DSA is like part, cause it also gets a check on your reality too. And like, I, and I do think that in the short round, at least the most immediate thing is like, I do think DSA and other groups need to put out more statements about January 6th and get their members and people to call <laughs> and to make statements. Cause I think Garland and the other audiences need to see that. But, Going beyond that, because we have the midterms, which I'm very curious what you guys think, you know, it's going to be bad. And I don't think it's just that, like, the Democrats didn't do anything. I think the Democrats didn't do anything, I think, as Ryan, because you're saying is they don't – it's not even that – some people say they don't want to. I don't think it's that. I think they just don't know how. They don't know. I think it's just they're not they're, – they're the Democratic – when I say Democrats, I'm speaking specifically of the establishment, like – they're willing to do the things to go through the motions, like they're want the, the Supreme Court justice, do like the one – build back better, one bill, but they're not like, but after that, they just like aren't willing to have these hard fights. And I think that's Joe Biden's, one of his greatest failures is like why people voted for him, not me, but people voted for him because they said, he said he could use his Senate relationships and he hasn't been able to, you know, I mean, like, I mean, like that was the whole thing was that Bernie had no friends in the Senate and Biden did. And I was like, even I was like, I'm not, I, I, may, I was like, maybe that's true. And it, and it hasn't, he hasn't been able to do that. And I think 
what ultimately is going to happen is like, we are going to have to get, build these coalitions locally. And that's where I think, because I just think the federal government is so stuck. And that's where I like, where I talked to Ross Barkin had that thing about the future of socialism is local, which has some valid critiques, which uh, about, you know, especially with climate change, but like the federal government is so gridlocked that you have to build these, you know, to go back to Brandeis, you have to build these petri dishes of democracy elsewhere and have some proof of concept. And I think that's really what the left can focus on and provide inspiration. Because I think when people do see things working, they get excited. And I think that's what's been exciting that's about right. Starbucks. But federally, it's almost, I'm the first person who to say like, you know, as much as Biden disappoints me, I don't think the left should bother to challenge him because I just think it's just a tremendous amount of energy for a losing cause, you know, um, whereas I think there's a lot of better energy spell elsewhere. But I'm very curious what you both think about, you know, getting unstuck right now, you know. <laughs> well, just on that point, can I ask you, David, yeah. how, what's your calculus in terms of why, let's say, AOC is a challenger to, to Biden? Uh, or if Biden, who knows what the reason is, maybe Biden decides not to run and it's it's Harris or kind of an open field or well, what, what's your thinking in terms of a waste of energy? Is it just because of historically that's not gone well or is it what, what's your thinking there? Yeah. So I wrote this piece about uh, in the Socialist Forum, which is DSA's more like theoretical journal where I go over this. So if there's an open seat, no, I think the left should there needs to be a, a standard bearer, whether it's AOC, Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Ryan Cooper, it, there just has to be something, you know, you know, um, I someone who's constitutionally Ryan would be a good choice. I think it would be too. Like I, I love Ilhan Omar, but she's not constitutionally eligible, which I have to remind <laughs> a lot of comrades. It's, we'll, we'll change the constitution one day, but uh, for now she's not That's eligible. Right. But I think history has shown, um, even with Trump to a certain extent, though his challengers weren't that serious. You know, if you have a challenger, like going back to Ted Kennedy, I brought up. <laughs> Uh, Pat Buchanan against George Bush Sr., which a lot of people forget, <laughs> you know, you basically are do, it's like the harbinger that this, this person's going to lose. And I just think that like what I will say too, which is like I haven't mentioned yet is like, uh, a, a DSA member who had been in the International Socialist Organization, which is uh, defunct now, but had supported Ralph Nader in 2000. He was the first person in 2020 to sound the alarm to me privately being like, we need to say something because if Trump wins, DSA will be blamed like the Green Party was in 2000. He's like, whether you think that's fair, and he's like, the point was it was a political, real politic. It's like, whether it's fair or not, whether you think Ralph Nader cost Gore the election, that's irrelevant. The Green Party never recovered from that. And he's like, DSA will not recover from this. So my thing, too, is like you launch this challenger. I don't think DSA would actually recover if like – Biden was to lose. You know, I think it would be like DSA would become the scapegoat and be kind of further isolated. So it's just a real politic assessment that I think it's a lot of energy. I think there are comradely arguments against this, such as like presidential primaries really are one of the main vehicles for political discussion in this country. For, for sadly, like, I mean, it's just objectively true. Yep. So you, um, and I think Biden, is not, you know, I think people, I think it's not just DS, it's not just social Democrats and progressives who are like underwhelmed by Biden, I think. Uh, so, right. Uh, but, but and so that complicates it, doesn't it? Be because at this point to say that, that the, you know, the left doesn't want to challenge Biden might make him want to run again when we want him to not run again, probably, right? Like that would be yeah. better, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, it, so it's, a, it's, it's a tricky thing, right? It's very tricky. And I think like, and I think I, afraid, it was, I had one uh, journalist too who said like the one that also issues is like people are like who will, who are these bright stars to challenge Biden? It was like everyone who ran in twenty twenty like there's, except for AOC who's now being floated like it's also the, the the bench is really not deep about someone people who political watchers think is a credible candidate. Um, and we'll see who what happens. I mean like I don't think Trump. I hope Trump goes to jail, but I don't think I wouldn't bet my paycheck on it. But I I don't. I just don't know. I mean, I think the mood of the country has really shifted and we'll see. Like I, th I, I so I do think it, it's just very hard to imagine, but things have changed very quickly in the past three to four years. So yeah, you the can't past count on anything. three to four weeks. I mean, I guess I, I think your point about local stuff being like a sort of organizing priority for specifically leftist organization is well taken. You know, I watched the, um, what's his name? Paul Prescott try to take on Anthony Williams. They did not win, but it was a, it was a it's good close. fight. 
Um, it was fairly close as far as a primary goes. Um, you know, I think they won some important lessons. They did very well in Philly, less well in the suburbs in the state Senate race. Uh, but you know, we have a bunch of other DSA folks, uh, in the, in this Pennsylvania legislature now, you know, and they're, they're, um, making strides. Uh, we got Nikhil Saval, we got Rick Krajewski, um, Fiedler, you know, there, there, there's a, uh, beginnings of a caucus there. And that's something you could build on. I mean, cause Philly, uh, in the Philly suburbs is, you know, like a, like a fifth of the state population, um, something like that. I, the, the, the thing about the, the presidential race, uh, you know, that, that's sort of sticking in my head an inescapable logic, I guess, which is that like, if Biden won't take on the Supreme Court and Congress won't take on the Supreme Court, then there won't be a, a, a an election in 2024. Very probably we'll have that independent state legislature shit I was talking about before. And in that case, it's like, that's the ball game. Um, that, uh, you, you need to, um, I mean, number one, like for keep the Republican victory down as low as possible in the midterms. And then, you know, if Biden won't, if Biden's just going to let the Supreme Court steal all of his power as president, then you need somebody else. And I don't, you know, so, you know, you're in this sort of political handicapping brain now. I, I wouldn't run AOC. I don't think she's very young. Uh, she's also very controversial. She's been like a hate object on the right for a long time already. Um, I, you know, the, the person that comes to my mind is JB Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, who is, I think, fairly close to the sort of center of like normie opinion. And I think critically isn't, as far as I could tell, a total chicken shit loser who will just like, you know, do the animal house thing, or you're just sitting there getting whacked to the broom, you know, please, sir, can I have another? <laughs> um, and that, you know, that to me, possibly, I mean, it depends on what Biden does, but like, you almost can't do without it. If the, if the, if the democratic president isn't going to stand up to the court and at least uh, in sh- prevent them from gutting the entire presidential election system, then it's like, well, <laughs> you know, why are we even bothering <laughs> with anything? Um, you know, that I could be wrong about that. Like, like, but it's, it's, it's hard to escape the logic. Right. Um, so what, you know, I don't have a sort of like concluding remark there, but no, but I think you're hitting one of the things we haven't dealt on, but is a real problem is like, what you kind of talked about with like the confidence issue. And there's like, yeah. I'll use one of my fancy GRE words. I remember diffidence. And I think there's a real diffidence and there's a diffidence in like, and there's a reification. There's like a worship of the Supreme court that is so bad <laughs> at this point. And like, you know, that is like actually what people don't want, I think, which is leading to the problem where like there, it creates real tensions and that are irresolvable long term because why should New York state not enforce its gun law? I mean, it's just, it's just like, it's like, why should New Yorkers like, where they're not depriving people really of fundamental, it's not, they're not oppressing like this like marginalized class. I mean, it's a safety issue that New Yorkers want to do. It's like, because these are going away from like rights of the oppressed or rights of like, even if we don't like them, like the, I don't agree with the prayer thing, with the prayer ruling, but it's like, at least I understand that's part of a religious freedom discussion that we can discuss. But one thing is like, it's just this polity made this policy decision. <laughs> That in the EPA that you guys are just like intervening and eventually that's going to create irreconcilable tensions, I think, long term. But and that's the that's where I'm concerned about the, the slide to liberal democracy. And I think that's what's best is like building things locally right now to like build foundations that can resist some of the worst elements that are happening. You know, I think that's why I think the, the, the focus is local is because it's just I don't know what else to say besides like I agree with you about Pritzker in the sense like. Pritzker was at least speaking against bipartisanship because why, why people care and worship bipartisanship is beyond me at this point because it's so clear. It's bananas. And it's also like, if you want to be overly intellectual about it, it's the parties have realigned. Like people don't want to admit that sometimes, but like, cause they're like, Democrats used to do this. I'm like, did they or did there, was there like a New Deal coalition that forced and there was like the threat of fascism and communism, which forced Roosevelt to do these things? Because like we don't have, you know, ha- part of DSA's vision was uniting. Originally, it was always I thought it was interesting was uniting the, the bases of the three Georges. It was George Wallace, 
George meeting a George McGovern. So it's like going backwards. It's like the peaceniks, the labor folks and the white working class, you know, and th- that didn't happen. But you did see like, you know, Henry Cuellar is like there's one pro-choice Democrat who almost barely held on. Thank God the establishment defended him, you know, but there aren't. But the Blue Dog Caucus, as I read about, has been slaughtered. You know, they don't exist. And they, and the liberal Republicans that I don't know how old you are, but I really do remember them. Um, they, they don't exist anymore, especially New York, like where you had people who were pro-choice, even pro-union. Those people don't exist. So you have this. So the bipartisanship just isn't possible in, for most things. They, for the, I'm really shocked they even got the gun. You know, I think it's only because I don't, and that would, but otherwise, you know, it's really not possible unless you're doing symbolic votes, like when the squad votes against, you know, the infrastructure bill, because they know that 12 Republicans will, will do it. And those Republicans are like <laughs> being attacked by their own base. <laughs> you know, and it's like hilarious. The last thing I'll say too is I'll never forget. I knew the PRO Act, which is a pro labor legislation, was in deep trouble when five Republicans voted for it in the House because none of those, those Republicans voted for the COVID relief. You know, so I was like, okay, they know this is not going to pass. <laughs> so they're not worried about their base coming after them. It was just shocking, to, but it's like it shows you, but it just, you don't, you can't. And I think it's like, we'll take, you know, a left organization prioritizing the grassroots to really, and really making, I think the last thing I'll say is like, a liberal democracy is a real possibility, and people have to admit that, even if it means aligning with people we don't always love, because it's just the alternative. It really is fundamentally so much worse. Yep. Well, I think that's probably a good place to to wrap it up. Um, yeah, we're about out of time anyway. But yeah, David um, Duhalde. The uh, the book is called Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. We will link to that in the show notes. But thanks for coming on, sir. Thank you. And thanks for all the good work you're doing, my friends. Keep it right. up.